Hello, shame listeners. It is one of your two beloved hosts, Nick Richards. One of our last episodes was on the Five Bloods. Um, and uh, Michael and I talk about a little bit later on in the episode how uh, I, I missed out on that episode. And I, I'll go into my contribution to to what I thought about the film. But as I'm sure you've heard, um, shortly after we or right around the same time that we released that episode, it was announced that um, Chadwick Boseman had lost his battle with cancer. Um, And so I wanted to take a moment to talk briefly um, about him. Though his cinematic contribution was cut tragically short, um, he he made an incredibly impactful mark while he was acting. Um, of course, mostly known as the Black Panther. What an incredibly powerful gift that he left us. And I found the messages of that film about um, pride, leadership, collaboration, um, just just they were messages that stuck with me long after I, I finished watching the films one quote that I'd like to take the opportunity to share is actually from one of the post credit scenes um, that as we all struggle with, with the uh, current state of our world um He's, he's addressing the, the UN Assembly after the credits, and he says, In times of crisis, we build bridges while the foolish build barriers. Um, so I, I think we, we would all benefit from holding, holding the spirit of that message with us. Um, do your best to build bridges um, instead of barriers, every, everybody, you know, both those with ill intentions and the best of intentions are building barriers right now. I myself find myself doing it in little ways. Um, and I'm going to try and do better to build bridges instead. Um, and, and then the other element of course is, um, his, his portrayal as Storm and Norman in Five Bloods. Now, uh, according to his IMDb page, um, there is one or two more films that may or may not feature Chadwick um, coming out posthumously. But his his last uh, full released credit um, before his death was Defy Bloods. And I, I find it fitting that... The, the last thing that he left us with was this portrayal of this beloved, uh, respected memory. You know, almost, almost like a ghost talking to the, the cast as they go through the events of the film. Um, he, he was... A sage who would give them advice that they would recall to get through individual moments, but more than that, 
he instilled in them what their mission should be. And it is one that our country is dealing with now. And, you know, you, you don't need a, a middle-aged cis white male to, to tell you, you know, what, what it all means. Um, but I, I just, I just found that really meaningful that that was his, his final gift to us. I felt like in order for him to be a good king, you know, one of the good signs of, of someone who was wise is that, is that they disseminate responsibility. Right. Um, and I, so I, I felt that, you know, his father would have taught him, you know, use everybody's skills. Don't try to do everything. Right. Um, you, can't, you can't be everywhere at one time. So it was important for Denai to be as strong as she is. Uh -huh. It was important for Lupita to be as strong as she is. Um, and, and I felt like, um, you know, what we had as far as, you know, there's no real... I don't think there's a villain in this movie. I think you have two sides of the same coin. Right. The Kill, Killmonger story that's and an the T'Challa story. Yeah. Um, you know, we treated it that way. That, that's way a, that's an interesting together. idea that there was, no, there was no villain. It was two sides of a story. I mean, more than ever in America right now, people feel like, oh, there's a villain, there's no villain. There's, it feels like every story needs to have that. But that's what made Black Panther so complicated. And I won't give any spoilers away, but it felt like a story where you truly did not know how you felt. Mm -hmm. You just had to work on how you felt about what the, how the people were trying to do what they were trying to do. Well, it, it doesn't let anybody off the hook. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, and that, I think that's, that's the key thing is that I think when you, you, everybody is the hero in their own story. You know, right. like, like you should be the hero in your own story. You should be, um, you know, you, you, you should see yourself conquering, um, you know, the dramatic action of whatever you're trying to do. So when you get the crisis, you know, you know how to deal with it. You right. should be able to do that. And th there are people that come in and help you with your story, but you have to be the person who, who deals with the conflicts that are in place. Nobody else can. There's no deuce ex machina right. that's going to come in and, and, and save it for you. Even if you pray to God, God expects you to do some things. So I think um, you have to be that hero. Yes. Do you like <laughs> horror movies? Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. Okay. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you because MBD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now, genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well. For some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. 
In addition, Rumord will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Dober, Director of Programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to say. <laughs> strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with MVD Entertainment Group and genre champions Rumord Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumord Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society is supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELESS SHAMELESS! SHAMELESS! Own promo code! Yes, you heard me, you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months. That's just insanity to me. So, once again, go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T no spaces. No spaces. All one word. Shameless. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. Have I ever told you about the movie Hell Comes to Frogtown? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I talked about this movie not too... Uh, actually, it probably is a little bit now. It's probably about close to a year ago. Or at least what felt like a year ago, depending on if it happened before quarantine or actually last year. I couldn't tell you. But... <laughs> Um, it is. It stars Rowdy Roddy Piper, which, if you need any other reason Excellent. to see the movie, uh, it's a Vinegar <laughs> Syndrome release about okay. uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. He plays a character by the name of Sam Hell. <laughs> so it's great because, like, when you hear the title "Hell Comes to Frogtown," you're like, "Oh shit's about to pop off in Frogtown!" But no, it's literally <laughs> Sam Hell is going to a place called Frogtown. <laughs> so it's about Rowdy Roddy Piper, and he plays Sam Hell. And it's in a it's in a post apocalyptic futuristic wasteland that's a matriarchal society, and um, to give you more of an idea, where'd you go? Oh, there you are. To give you more of an idea of what the society's like, uh, men have also become sterile, and he is one of the few fertile men in the world. And mind you, this is all treated very seriously. Plot. <laughs> He's one of the few fertile men in the world, and. He's also a criminal. So they arrest him, and the U.S. government pretty much says, we give you, we're going to give you two options. You can either go with us to help rescue these women from this area called Frogtown. Uh, who slash impregnate them. Slash impregnate them so we can <laughs> kickstart the society. Or we can kill you. <laughs> and he's like, whoa! And, you know, in, like, typical Rowdy Roddy Piper way. And then, like, it, they, but they're like, just so you, you can't try to escape, we're going to put a chastity belt on you. Over your pants. Makes perfect sense. So what you're saying is this is the inspiration for children of men? Yes. And maybe even uh, it also got a little bit of Mad Max Fury Road in it. Nice. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, you know, his team is a really foxy scientist woman uh, and a really foxy woman who blows shit up with her guns and everything. And they don't give Roddy Roddy Piper a weapon. So through a good portion of it, he's just like reacting and freaking out. Like, whoa, why would you do that? You know, because he doesn't have a weapon. Um, and then they get to Frogtown. And I should not have been 
like surprise. I figured Frogtown was like a cheeky name because it's like ugly people or something. No, it's legitimately inhabited by frog people. <laughs> and like I, sh- like, I should not have been so surprised that there were giant <laughs> frog people in this world, but I was. <laughs> you get there and you you observe it, and you're like, you know what? I should have been prepared for that. That's fair. <laughs> I I should have braced myself better. Yes, I should have been more anticipatory of Frogtown. And then, like, I was just thinking, like, I love very on-the-nose titles that tell you exactly what you're going to anticipate. Totally. So, like, examples of this were our movie is Sam Peckinpah's Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Some dude named Alfredo Garcia is going to get fucking beheaded. Um, or Brawl in Cell Block 99. There is going to be a brawl in the cell block. So, like, Hell Comes to Frogtown is fantastic for two reasons. One, because, like you said, you just think it's, like... At first glance, like, shit's, you know, there's going to be a big battle at Frogtown. But no, it's literally, hell is going to visit Frogtown. Scott Pilgrim saves the world. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's perfection. And When, when the uh, title so I'm is a my... spoiler. <laughs> I, yes, yes, exactly. But then, like, my favorite example of this is Don Coscarelli, who directed the Phantasm films. He made a movie called uh, John Dies at the End. I was I, I was just thinking of when I said the spoiler thing, I'm like, I know there's a movie called So-and-So Dies in the End, but I didn't remember and, it enough. And the tagline for the movie is, don't spoil the ending. <laughs> I don't care how good or bad that movie is. That is just marketing perfection. The, the movie... I think would be really up your alley to be completely yeah. frank because like tonally I think it's it's very close to what you were what you were going for with normal <laughs> nice so I th- I think tonally uh maybe a little more heightened like they are definitely going for a little bit more comedy but like just the irreverence of it <laughs> I think is 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 right up your alley screw you convention <laughs> yeah who needs to be conventional uh, and I'm going to apologize to our listeners now because I've got the window open. So you're going to hear the dogs outside. Our, uh, our house guest, Emma, is outside with the dogs. Well, um, happy birthday to Frankenstein. It yes, sounds happy like birthday he's to having a fantastic party. It is September 3rd. This needs to go down in podcast history. It is my dog Frankenstein's birthday, and she has been celebrating by sleeping. Aww. And uh, we're going to take her to Petco at some point. With masks and social distance, the whole nine yards, and we are going to get her her free bag of treats because Petco Aww. gives you a free bag of treats on your dog's birthday. Do so, you get a bag of treats on your dog's birthday? Um, no, but I don't think I'd want their treats. All right, let me let me, let me wet my whistle with some delicious vitamin water that you can get Ooh. at any local grocery store. Give me money, vitamin water. <laughs> I'll take a sip of coffee for the working man. Oh no, no, I drank it all already, huh? I, I have, uh, uh, I've had too much coffee today. Couple of drops. All right, let me get in the character. Ooh, I gotta, I gotta make the font size bigger on this. Twelve point <laughs> font is not doing it for me. <laughs> all right, uh, I'm gonna warn you now. Uh, my my intro for you is a little weird and long, so just go with it. Just I, you know, I always do. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you like a, a point to you when it's when it's your turn to talk. Thank you. Warning: This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements: endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation: The Shameless Picture Show. 
Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is a man who made the strangest introduction when I first met him. A man who looked me straight in the eye and said, You can either surf or you can fight. We don't have waves in Wisconsin, so we had a fist fight right there. Nip Richards, hang 10. You better come back with my surfboard. I won't hurt you. I just want my board back. Uh, today's oh my god there's so much i have to talk about just the surfing alone uh because out of everything i've read no one's talking enough about the surfing on today's episode of the podcast nick and i are crossing a huge huge film off my shame list i don't know if it's on yours but it's definitely it is on mine as well well then we're crossing a huge film off of our both of our shame lists francis ford coppola's 30 million dollar art house war film apocalypse now Set during the Vietnam War, Captain Benjamin Willard is rotting in a scuzzy hotel room in Saigon. He's been fighting for three years and lacks any purpose that doesn't involve the bottom of a bottle. All he knows is war, and he'd rather fight than be with his family. Willard, having a certain level of skill, is brought in to assassinate another U.S. soldier. Colonel Walter E. Kurtz is a special forces officer who went insane is now, and is now leading a group of guerrilla soldiers in a deadly fight against the United States. His soldiers, a group of locals, view Kurtz as a god. Thank you, Google. <laughs> Willard takes the job and, with the help of a small group of motley soldiers, travels down a Vietnamese river to find Kurtz and to see what's at the darkest corners of his own soul. It's a quest of morality, accountability, and desperation. Coppola's film, on the surface, sounds like your run-of-the-mill war film filled with firefights, loud explosions, helicopters, surfing, and so much more. But the further Willard and his team go down the river, the more the journey becomes internal. Original, originally written by John Milius and uh, with George Lucas having interest in directing, that would have been a weird film, is uh, <laughs> a small film no one ever heard of called Star Wars took Lucas's attention away, and Coppola and his American Zeltrope team came in to produce. With the Vietnam War being a fresh wound during production, Milius and Coppola wanted to make a film that was less faithful to the tactical side of the war, but did the veterans and their internal feelings justice. There's mixed opinions of whether or not they accomplished this. But despite everything, Coppola pulled through in a way that no one anticipated. The film was brilliant. The film won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, was nominated for eight Oscars, and won two of them for editing and cinematography. It won over the critics who understood what Coppola was going for with his hallucinogenic visuals. To quote my best friend Kyle Arpke, Apocalypse Now is the greatest film ever made. Not necessarily my favorite, but the greatest. The film was directed by Francis Ford Coppola with a script written by John Milius with rewrites by Coppola. The film is loosely based on the book Hearts of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And the film features a revolutionary synthesizer score by Francis and his father, Carmine Coppola, state-of-the-art sound design by Walter Murch and his team, amazing cinematography from Vittorio Stataro, and so much more. The film's hefty cast includes Martin Sheen, Robert Duvall, a baby Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Bottoms, which is the funniest name ever, Frederick Forrest, Dennis Hopper, and Marlon Brando as Kurtz. This is the end. Beautiful friend. I've been a soldier since I was 19, and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins. They gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, 
I never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate with extreme prejudice. My orders say I'm not supposed to know where I'm taking this boat, so I don't. But one look at you and I know it's going to be hot. Pick your boat up and put it down like a baby right where you want it. This is the first of the night. Air calves, son. We're coming more out of the rising sun. And about a mile out, we'll put on the music. It scares the hell out of the slopes. My boys love it. Come in the morning. Smells like victory. That's a hard movie to like just describe. Did did you? I there was a little bit more distortion. Did you get Harrison Ford in the? Oh no, I forgot cast? to mention Harrison Ford. <laughs> and like when Harrison Ford came on screen, I was like, "Hey, Amanda, look, it's Harrison Ford." She goes, "No, really? Oh God, that is him." <laughs> it was like I, I'm obviously it was early in his career. I but I don't know exactly where it was on the lineup. And he did a fine job with it. It was just really interesting to see Harrison Ford in such an underwhelming role. It was after Star Wars. Really? Yes. 
So there was like this the, is seventy nine. Star Wars was seventy seven. Yeah. Okay. You know, they were probably over budget, and they'd be like, "Bring Ford down. We can we can pay him scale." I don't know. <laughs> He's friends with us. Maybe he was a much bigger character in the seven hour edit. <laughs> probably not. Uh, well, and like we watched the final cut, which to think that there's. The Redux version, which is the longest released version of the film, is three and a half. But yes, there is talks that there was a five-hour cut that Coppola likes to say doesn't exist, but people have claimed to have seen it. So I don't know who to believe. Do I believe Coppola or do I believe the nerds on the internet? (laughs) I don't know who I was insulting with that. I think it was just genuine confusion of, of who, so. who do we believe. It's like, wait, anymore? am I insulting the nerds or am I insulting Coppola? <laughs> Who's the liar in this situation? I don't know. <laughs> oh, that <sighs> if that isn't a metaphor for our current state of affairs, I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and this is uh, the second Coppola film we've talked about. Like, hell, uh, It's funny to think, before we get into Apocalypse Now for, for, for real, Yeah, we did Godfather last season, or was it? Season two. I don't remember. I, I, I think yeah, it was season two. I don't remember offhand. It, but it took us a surprisingly long amount of time to get to that one, given how high up we both listed it as, like, that is on our shame list. And, and funny enough, I've wanted to go check out two and three now that I've seen the first one, and I just still haven't gotten to it. Cause I, really, <laughs> I really enjoyed The Godfather. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. And yeah. it's my – I've talked to people about this before. My introduction to Coppola was very weird because I hadn't seen his big films. I'd not seen The Godfather up until that episode. Up until a week ago, I've not seen Apocalypse Now. Right. And I, I, I remind me to talk about how um, – surprised i was by the film that we actually got uh in expectations versus reality type thing okay. um my uh my because uh my introduction to coppola was like his his weirder films like his family like you know i'd seen bram stoker's dracula which i think is is phenomenal but then, like, um, like I just recently rewatched Jack, which is a film I saw as a kid. And I, it always kind of blows me away that that's a Coppola film. But you can kind of see his style, the way he can kind of elevate just average material and still bring a lot of style and, intri- in, you know, in, intrigue to it. And then, like, the film that really clicked for me, it's like, oh, shit, I want to see more of this director, was actually Peggy Sue Got Married. Okay. Which I think is actually a masterpiece that no one's talking about. Nancy? It's Nancy. Oh, 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 my baby sister. Oh, oh, honey. Oh, 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 I'm so happy to see you. What are you doing? Mom said you were sick. You're never happy to see me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I want us to be closer. I have too many unresolved relationships in my life. Teenagers are weird, and you're the weirdest. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have it's not funny. seen it. Well, I highly It's funny. I, I couldn't sleep one night. Back when we lived in Maguanago, me and Amanda had our apartment. And I got up in the middle of the night to watch a movie. And I was like, well, I want something kind of light and something funny or, you know, fun. And I, I was going through Hulu, and there was Peggy Sue Got Married. He's like, okay, I like Kathleen Turner. Nicholas Cage, okay, I'll watch this. It's, and it, it's Young Cage. You know, it's like pre-Raising Arizona Cage. Like, oh, that's the cage with the goofy teeth. That's fun, Cage. 
No, I love all Nicolas Cage. Um, <laughs> and I put, a, I plugged a pair of headphones in, and you know, so I didn't bother anyone, and I cranked it loud. And by the end of the movie, I was sitting there, like, hugging a pillow, weeping to myself. Oh, wow. <laughs> but yet, at the same time, I was laughing. I was having a great time. And by the end, I was just, like, having this emotional reaction to this film. And I was like, it's a, t- it's a goofy time travel movie about a woman going back to her high school life. But she still looks like an adult. Like, she's playing herself in high... It's, it's, it's funny. And oh. Nicolas Cage is doing a very cartoony voice. But his filmmaking prowess made me feel something real nice. and legitimate. <laughs> so it's like that was like okay I need to see more of his movies and I think shortly after that is when I said we should do the Godfather. Nice. <laughs> so and then here we are to Apocalypse now. <laughs> so how do you want to start this Nick? Should I ask you what you thought? What I thought? How do you want to do uh, this? Well, uh, since you knew it was on your shame list but wasn't sure about mine, I feel like it's only fair to start with your tape. So Michael, <sighs> what did you think of Apocalypse now? So I, I should first start since I talked about my experience with Francis Coppola. Is it Coppola? Coppola? I don't I don't know if there's a wrong you're, way to say it. You're asking the wrong guy. I've always pronounced it Coppola, but I could very well be. I feel, I feel like I, it's I feel like it's caramel and caramel. I feel like I use them right. both interchangeably <laughs> that without even thinking about it. Or, um, um, but so I had kind of an aversion to this film for the longest time. Um, one. Because I just thought it was going to be just a really stuffy epic. You know, you kind of know what I'm talking Like, just, I don't know. Something yeah, about it. Yeah, Same sure. way they felt about The Godfather. I was like, I'm sure it's a good, if not great film. Just something about it wasn't grabbing me. And I also thought <laughs> it was just going to be like a generic war film. And it kind of starts off that way. And we'll talk about that. But, like, I just kind of, I thought it was going to be just a, uh, you know, a really generic war film. Kind of like... And this and this is not taking anything away from these other films, kind of like a platoon or something like that, where it's like it's going to show the horrors of war, friendship, teamwork, all this other shit. I'm, like, I, I knew it was probably going to be well made, and I hadn't. I feel like I not, never hear anyone really talking about this film, other than to say it's great, to give me any other reason not to believe that. Uh, and the only time that like ever kind of perked my ears about this film was when I was in film school, and we were talking about. Uh, the science of editing and montage and they showed the, the the opening title sequence of apocalypse now and that's all i knew about the film I was like okay that seems kind of cool but i just figured the story was just going to be in just another big war film that just had a cool opening or some shit i i'm still wrapping my mind around this film which i like but i truly do think this film is brilliant and the fact that I don't have answers for every everything, but I've not stopped thinking about it since I watched it, doesn't count for you because you just watched it like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> I, I was just going to make the same joke like I haven't been stopped thinking about it either. Um, I, I, I think I can definitely see this movie becoming one of my favorites of all time. And it's a film that oh. I, I, I simultaneously want to rewatch, but at the same time I kind of want to savor it. I don't want to rewatch it, at least not right away. And Just it's not the, to say I don't have problems with it. Let that flavor linger for yeah. a bit longer. And that's not to say I'm, I think it's a perfect film. I do have some problems with it. Not, not even problems. Just like, no, that's you know that's a weird choice. I wouldn't have done that. But um, I feel like there was a quote I heard one time that says uh, a film without flaws, it, it, a, uh, a film without flaws is not a film worth seeing or something like that. That you know the flaws or something that's not that's imperfect about a film is what makes it attainable. 
and something that you can grasp onto. Okay. I have um in in art the concept of a flaw is very hard to like I even hesitate to use that word because everything is interpretation and, and, and creative 100%. expression and one hundred percent flaws how do you define right a flaw? Um I guess more so I would have maybe done it differently, but at the same time, I don't know if I would have because I don't know if I would have ever have tackled a film like this. Right, yeah. <laughs> And, and there's you. You definitely wouldn't have done it the same way because every director would have d- done it differently, and that's part of like the what's interesting about having these conversations, like we do uh, about these films, is we're talking about the director's interpretation and the writer's intent and the actor's in, you know interpretation of that and. Mm-hmm. And and I think I, I tend to gravitate towards films that like have an impact on me are films that I think about myself as a filmmaker and how my brain works. I don't I've not read the script for this film, so I don't know how in depth Milius went into like internal themes and the hallucinogenic feel of this film. Right. But I I look at this film as like. I can't imagine that if someone would be like, Michael, go make a war film. I don't know if I would have ever, in what world, I would have come out with this film. Right. And that fascinates me. It's like, this is not a film. It's, these are the type of films that I love that I don't think I could make. And whenever, like, decisions are made that, like, I w- don't know if I would have come up with that, that intrigues me. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. For For me, um, I've... Always, I, I think similarly to you, like, uh, war films have never really done it for me. And, you know, my, I grew up with a lot of, you know, World War II style, you know, dust boots and, uh, you know, the my dad's era of war films. Which were essentially just I, Western set in war time. Yeah, totally. Um, but the, the setting of war... Tends, not that it's a turnoff, it's just not something that I'm drawn to that much. Um, and I found that I got into Apocalypse Now because, as you said, it did, and you know, the, you could subcategorize Vietnam War films. It, oh, yeah, it was a completely different feel to them. The setting was the Vietnam War, and he was on a mission, mm-hmm. though, it, though it didn't exist and never would exist. Um, what mission? <laughs> but it it wasn't like none of what they did was really about the war. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it it, and because of that, I was able to get into it much more. Yeah, and actually, if you don't mind me reading a quote real quick, not at all. I think uh, Roger. Well, oops, sorry. What? While you're looking that up, I just wanted to point out that you called him Baby Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> and that's exactly what I wrote in my notes. Right Maybe next to the Fisher. word God. God, mm. yeah. Well, that was uh, with regard to um, uh, Kurtz's character and how they described him. <laughs> so I'm going to read this entire paragraph. I don't think this entire paragraph is important, but it feels weird just to cut into the middle of a paragraph. Okay. All right. So this is from Roger Ebert's book called The Great Movies. It is a felt book I've had since high school. I actually got this book for free, Um, and if you can see at the beginning of the book, it says, Discard. Can you see that? Yeah. 
It says discard and from the Ronald Wilson Reagan College Preparatory High School Library because it was fucked up. Uh, and when you get to the chapter about taxi driver, it has one page for taxi driver and then it repeats the same page like three or four times. <laughs> so I was like, well, can I just have the book? And they're like, oh, we have to get rid of this. I was like, can I have it? <laughs> the rest of the book is fine. All right. You discard it and yeah. I'll find it. Yeah. Anyways, the chapter says. Um, actually, I'll, I'm going to read the, the chapter before it is short, so I'll, I'll, I'll connect it. Um, Give us the lead in. Yeah. The rock and roll soundtrack opens and closes with the end by the doors and includes disc jockeys on transistor radios. Good morning, Vietnam. The music underlies the surrealistic moments as when Lance, played by Sam Bottoms, one of Willard's crew, water skis behind the boat. It also shows how the soldiers try to use the music of home and booze and drugs to ease their loneliness and apprehension. Other important films like Platoon, The Deer Hunter, Full Metal Jacket, and Casualties of War take their own approaches to Vietnam. Once at the Hawaii Film Festival, I saw five North Vietnamese films about the war. They never mentioned America, only the enemy. And one director told me, it is all the same. We have been invaded by China, France, the U.S. But Apocalypse Now is the best Vietnam film, one of the greatest of all time, because it pushes beyond the others, into the dark places of the soul. It is not about war so much as about how war reveals truth we would be happy never to discover. In a way, I cannot quite explain my thoughts, since Calcutta prepared me to understand the horror that Kurtz found. If we are lucky, we spend our lives in a fool's paradise, never knowing how close we skirt the abyss. What drives Kurtz mad and his, is his discovery of this. So, I don't know. I, I thought he kind of summarized pretty well. Sorry, I'm not talking directly to the microphone. I thought he, he summarized pretty well kind of what I was vibing with in this film. Yeah. It's, it's less about war and more about the effects of war. Yeah. Or uh, uh, the way that he said exploring the, the darkness. I... I take issue with the idea of them finding some kind of truth in this dark, you know, and mm-hmm. given everything that's going on, um, I would say it's trauma, you know, manifest, um, that they confuse for truth that they believe mm-hmm. is some kind of greater truth. And, um, and that doesn't jive with my view of things, but, um, I think it's true to the characters mm-hmm. for sure. Um, yeah, because I think it's I think it's easy to say that Martin Sheen at the first frame of this film is not the same person as he is at the last frame, and um, he he has had a change. Whether it's good change or bad change is up for debate. And um, I, you know, something that I noticed early on in the film is there are very few clues as to who he is. Oh, yeah, very early little. on. So whether... I, I'd have to watch it again probably multiple times to decide whether or not I think he's changed. I don't um, think he's that belligerent drunk screaming at himself in his room <laughs> anymore. I feel like by the end of the film, to me, it feels like he, he has purpose. The the and I wrote down what he wrote about uh, the mission. Um, I took the mission. What the hell else was I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and and I think 
What I found another line interesting at the end where um, Kurt says, um, he's talking about, don't judge me. You can, it's fair for you to come here and, and kill me, but it's not fair for you to judge me. Um, and he says, it's judgment that defeats us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why he liked um, Willard's character and why he invited him so deep and allowed him. You know, he he killed Chef. Yeah. Cook? Cook? Chef? Chief. Oh, uh, Chef, yeah. The Chef. Um, who would have also, if you believe the the unreliable narrator that Kurtz wanted to die a soldier's death and he was tired of all of this. Mm-hmm. If you and uh, the photojournalist um, said the same thing, um, he killed Chef, who would have called in the the firebombing that would have killed him. But he allowed, a- according to Willard's perspective, wanted Willard to come kill him. And I think yeah. it's because he didn't judge him, and that was clear from the beginning. Like he mm-hmm. said over and over again. These people think that he's evil, but how can you say what is evil in this world? It seems silly. He's, he compared it to, he said, killing, being being accused of murder here is like giving out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Willard's character didn't seem to ever judge Kurtz's character. Yeah, and... Granted, we're jumping all over the place, but we tend to. <laughs> um, well, and, also... and this film has so many anchor points throughout. We could it easily that, do a podcast think... on each section of the film. Like, yeah, honestly. no, it's it's. To, and and, and to... I relate to what you said earlier, where you're still trying to wrap your head around it. Like, there is so much happening, but it's also easy to get caught up in the flow of the film and not realize everything that you're seeing. Yeah. Um, that it it is it's gonna take time to process it all. Yeah, and I, and I feel like the reason that I say that I feel like Martin Sheen's character Willard is different at the end is because like the way that I kind of read the movie and read the relationship between Willard and Kurtz is that Kurtz believes that Willard could very easily take over the mantle, kind of be like the Hydra, and you know be the head that sp- spouts up and takes over. And I feel like the character of Willard at the beginning of the film would have very easily done it because as he's reading through the dossier about Kurtz, he respects this man. At the end, I think it's interesting. The way I read the ending is that he chooses not to. He he grabs Lance and they leave. I I think yeah no I he chooses I, to suppress that urge, and I think they show that that decision really clearly where he comes out of the ruins and he sees uh, Kurtz's army kneel down before him and he stands there for a moment. And I think that's the decision point. But even though it's all done in silence, um, it, and d- it seems like he could stay here and be the new Kurtz, but instead he, yeah, he grabs Lance, gets on the boat, and heads back. Though I also find it interesting that he doesn't respond to the radio transmission uh, saying, you know, looking for a status update. He just continues on down the river. And doesn't, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, doesn't Willard throw his machete to the ground? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, I, yeah I, I didn't notice it, but if he did, it certainly would 
be extremely symbolic. Yeah, of like, you know, ending the the war, ending the fight. Yeah. You know, it's almost feels like I just like I expected him when he walked out with the machete just to be I just want to like recut the scene and just add in the dialogue from Forrest Gump. I'm tired. I think I want to go home now. <laughs> Cuz that's just how his body language just felt very right. much like I'm done with this. Fuck well, this shit. Also, before he, like, right before he decides to go kill him, he says, they, and I forget the tense that he used, and I think that's important, um, they would make me a major for this. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the kind of line that you would say before you abandon the mission and leave. But he still yeah. goes and does it. But then also when he gets back and that radio transmission comes in, he doesn't go, yep, mission accomplished. Let's firebomb these guys. I'm going to go pick up my my stars. And, you know, so he's somewhere in the middle where he's he didn't become the new Kurtz, the Mm -hmm. new god. He didn't go, Okay, I'm all in on this mission and the army and, you know, that. So he's like lost somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And. I almost feel like, so, one of the scenes that was not in the original cut of the film, but has been in both the Redux and the final cut, is the plantation sequence um, with the French people. I, I had a sense when I saw that, I'm like, I bet this is was not in the original. And I almost feel, wonder if, so a lot of people don't like the sequence. I can see what they don't like about it, and it really does kind of affect the flow of the film. But I think as a standalone sequence, I do like it. I want to think it's beautiful. It's, it's just one of the most gorgeously shot scenes in the film. Um, then, uh, in in that whole dinner scene, yeah, uh, all of the shots were film. It was either of Willard or they were over the shoulder shots, and that was a long table. So mm. so it wasn't accidental that all of the shots were over the shoulder shots of Willard like the entire conversation was happening from his perspective mm-hmm. with minimal um, close-ups of the other uh, of the other dinner guests and i just just thinking about this now i almost wonder if like that experience with these you know these french people that took over this rubber plantation years ago and are like i we this is our place we're not leaving if that had some sort of effect on why, why he was like, I can't stay in this jungle. Look what it's doing to these people. These people are, for all intents and purposes, civilized, but they're just as fucking insane. Sure. Like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm almost wondering if, like... Because Roger Ebert describes them as ghosts um, in the same essay I just read from. And I'm almost wondering okay. if, like, that had some sort of effect on on Willard's plan of staying. Well, I, you know, I... I it, it, I think there's no arguing that it certainly had an effect on him, uh-huh. but but what effect that had, I think is w- would be a really interesting discussion. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think an important thing that that scene brought up, um, that emphasized some other content in the film, was this idea that for the Americans, you're fighting over nothing. Like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Um, whereas the French, we're here, you know, we, we got this land, it's ours, we're protecting it. Like, we're defending. And references, references other wars that the French lost. And, and the French know, that group of French know why they're there. Yeah. 
Um, but why are you, it's, it's asking Willard, what are you doing here? Yeah. What are you fighting for? What are, it's his second tour. He says in the beginning, the reason why he's there is because even though he wanted to be home, once he got home, he couldn't stop thinking about, you know, it just Mm -hmm. like seeped into him. And honestly, like this might be a stretch, but I feel like it, what it reminds me of, um, are you familiar with the professional wrestler, Ric Flair? I've certainly heard the name to to All the right. extent that I know any professional wrestler. I am Ric Flair. I know. <laughs> well, he, you know, very prolific wrestler, sixteen time world champion, so on and so forth. Um, and back when he was at his prime, which is in the late seventies through the eighties, uh, it was not uncommon for wrestlers to be on the road pretty much every day of the year. You know, going to towns, doing all this other shit. And um, he said professional wrestling in a lot of ways, very much like how it feels like war with these guys, ruined his life because he said um, he was never home. And when he was home, he could just think about being on the road and, you know, all the debauchery and shit he'd get himself into. And, like, you just mentioning that made me think of, like, these old school professional wrestlers who, when they were home, they couldn't think of anything but leaving fucking home and when they're on the road they just want to go home again but then once they get home they get bored that reminds me so much of that scene in the beyond the mat documentary mm-hmm. where the wrestler is talking about the the motel life and, mm-hmm. and girls that he would be with and how he lost it like the debauchery made him lose the ability to be with his wife and mm-hmm. yeah i never use a needle thank you lord but, um, <clears throat> he's telling myself I'll never, ever do drugs. Never. No way. It's for losers. And we were wrestling 26, 27 days a month, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday, catching eight, nine airplanes a week. It was basically a necessity just to continue. And you took pills to go to sleep. You took pills because of your pain. You took cocaine to wake up so you could perform. You drank to go to sleep. You took sleeping pills. It's a trap, you know? It's a trap. Cocaine. It speeds me up so fast I can't think about my past. It speeds me up so fast that I don't have to be responsible. Yeah, and like, I think it was Oliver Stone. I was listening to an interview with him very recently uh, in to try to find something about the five bloods when I was doing that episode. Um, and I was listening to an interview with him because he had actually fought in the Vietnam War. Oh, okay. And he had said that, you know, a lot of young people went to the, went to, signed up for the Vietnam War foolishly because they thought oh this is something fun and exciting to do we can, you know you're 18 years old you have some independence you can get away from home travel is the way he kind of <laughs> described it you can go travel um you know and especially in the vietnam war when there were drugs Visit at locales. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you know there was drugs prevalent in the vietnam war drinking rock and roll music it, you know it's it's he said a lot of them kind of I, I, might, I might be paraphrasing a little bit a lot of them viewed it as party with guns and then they got there and was, oh fuck we chose wrong <laughs> uh and then they made bad decisions while there to kind of numb the pain of being there type of thing right. so it's like you know it's not surprising that there, there's three distinct stops well four but there's you know there's 
four distinct stops, but three that actually involve soldiers of the Vietnam War that feel like three very different parts of a journey. And actually, John Milius, the original writer, described it as his kind of retelling of Homer's Odyssey. Okay. Where you have the character of Kilgore, the... Um, the um, uh, the soldier character at the beginning of the film. I can't remember the, the actor. Robert Duvall's character. Yep. And I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> he's the Cyclops, and the Playboy bunnies are the sirens. Um, I trying to remember what exactly the uh, the the bridge sequence where it was the craziest sequence of the film, and you know. Yeah, um, I, when they get I, there and everyone's like, we don't have anyone that's in charge here. <laughs> I don't know Homer's Odyssey well enough to to tie it back to that, but it it felt like purgatory or you know a early circle of hell in you know uh, the inferno. If, yeah, if, I'd almost view the plantation sequence as being purgatory. It's, it feels very much like The Shining, like you've been here forever. <laughs> And you'll be here forever type of thing. And it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm still working. And I think there's a lot to be said about a film that I especially don't know how I feel about the first viewing. Because I think there's so much to dig into. And and I, I watched the making of documentary Hearts of Darkness. And one, Coppola kind of lost his mind making this film. Okay. Because um, he also, he paid for the movie out of pocket. <laughs> he... he he uh, he he like was going to he was pretty much if this movie wouldn't have worked he'd have to sell his winery he'd have to sell his house he'd he'd be broke and his wife was even like you have to make this movie so he's <laughs> she has voice recordings of him freaking out being like this movie's gonna be fucking terrible <laughs> and everyone's gonna hate it and why the fuck am I doing this and it's. It's crazy. Once again, another quote from Roger Ebert's book. If you don't mind me reading another quote, that I think is perfect. Um, uh, He said, In my review of The 400 Blows, I quoted the French director Francois Truffaut. Uh, The quote says, I demand the film express either the joy of making cinema or the agony of making cinema. I am not at all interested in anything in between. And honestly, like, um, the documentary about the making of this film is definitely about the agony of making cinema. <laughs> like, I'm surprised he made another movie after this. Because, like, I, well, knowing myself, if I would have gone through everything he would have done to make this film, I don't know if I would have ever finished it. And I don't know if I'd ever want to make another movie again. Yeah. He's got stamina. He's yeah. got grit. <laughs> Yeah, he, it's like, and, you know, they really shot this in, not Vietnam, but uh, I think Cambodia or someplace nearby. And, okay. Like, they actually had, like, the the um, the assistance of the government to use their helicopters and everything, but there were, like, guerrilla warriors in the, in the woods, so, like, if at any point they needed those helicopters, they would just fly off set and go be used <laughs> in an actual fight. And, like, they're in the middle of a shot one time, and, like, Coppola's like, where are the helicopters going? Where are the helicopters going? And they just fucking leave. Awesome. Uh, I feel like I just talked about a lot of random stuff. We, uh, again, uh, like like you were saying in the beginning, like this is a hard film to just like. All right, now chronologically, we're going to discuss our thoughts, and it's going to tie up nicely in a ni- mm. nice little bow. Like that ain't going to happen. 
I feel like you. we went from you asking me what I thought to us just going into discussion of the film. I, I never really asked you what you thought of the film, and I feel bad for um, that. Uh, no, I, I started to. I was When I was talking about uh, how I didn't really uh, get off on war movies ever, but that this one wasn't about that. Um, I, uh, as, as is no surprise, as is kind of consistently thought, I think it was an incredibly well done film. Um, I like even watching this three hour cut, like it, it was, it was worth three hours of my time to watch. Like it didn't, Mm -hmm. it didn't drag. I'm not like, why, why isn't this a two hour film? Um, it was very content rich. Like there was, I, I can, like you said, I can see the idea of pulling out that, uh, plantation sequence, but I was good with it. Oh, yeah. uh, when you said that it, it was like their ghosts, um, I actually put a note about um, how that fog rolled in at this point in the film. And then yeah. the fog parts to see a bunch of kind of soldiers in lighter colors than we've seen up till this point. Uh, and the first conversation is about respect for the dead. Um, so I think that's set up very much you know the that first interaction with them kind of set them up as ghost like oh definitely and like it's it's honestly the more i learn about the making of this film and the more i i i delve into it cuz I, I i honestly think the story that's happening off the you know the behind the scenes is just as interesting as the story that they're telling it's honestly surprising that this film came out as coherent as it did. <laughs> and then, like, I've, I, I, Walter Murch, who wrote that great quote that you had mentioned about editing that we talked about on our Alien episode. Yep. Um, he's the editor on this film. Well, there's a bunch of editors, but he's one of the most noteworthy. Um, he, he had mentioned they shot a million feet of film on this film. And it's like, uh, how, and it's, the fact that their cinematography is so brilliant. Yeah. The fact that their sound design is so brilliant. The fact that the film came together in a logical way that made sense considering everything that's going on is impressive. Yeah. I think one of the things that benefited that, something that I noticed throughout the film, is um, and something you can really only do when you have ridiculous amounts of footage is how thoughtful they were about what the camera was showing based on what was being discussed. And it was Mm -hmm. rarely the shot that you would default to, you know, it's whoever was talking, um, they would be filming some, what would typically be just a punch in reaction shot. Instead, they would sit on that person and you'd be noticing what they're looking at, which usually wasn't the person talking, um, take, take for instance when baby Lawrence Fishburne dies and they have this setup of the, this male interception that they got and he's uh, listening to this tape of his mother talking mm-hmm. and we're gonna be with and then that that um, the boat gets attacked and mm-hmm. he goes down and there's the, the the message of his mother playing but then at the same time after they all realize that Lawrence Fishburne goes down, then um, Lance not isn't worried about Lawrence Fishburne. He's worried about his puppy mm-hmm. that he got. So there's 
there's one person that runs over to Lawrence Fishburne's side. I think his name was Clean. Yeah. Some, something no, like no, that. No, uh, no. Clean was Lawrence Fishburne's character's name. Yeah, that's... that's oh, what, yeah, so, yeah. So Clean goes down. Lance is screaming about his puppy. Uh, and, and what they're choosing to show with each of those shots I found really fascinating because it was rarely what you were listening to. Um, and I, it, it was a stri- like, it was beautiful editing, beautiful filmmaking in that moment. Oh, yeah, and, and that's just one of, uh, and, you know, and 100 And to think examples. that this film had like four or five editors on it <laughs> and, and with intention, like, cause I think Coppola talks about in an interview and I'm, if I can find a clip of it, I want to play it where he talks about that sometimes, um, or Coppola or someone talk, maybe quoting Coppola said that, you know, he believes that sometimes if you have one editor, you suffer from only having one vision where if you have multiple editors and then try to get them to all follow the same vision, you can get some interesting beauty out of it. And then with how much footage they have and like how much uh, coverage they probably had to shoot with this film, and to make it even crazier, Martin Sheen had a fucking heart attack making this film. Oh, and really? he was out for four weeks, and they had to shoot wow. around him. Wow. They had body doubles standing in for it, and it's like, and they got to a certain point, like, we shot everything we can shoot without him, like, we shot everything but his close-ups, and, like, just to keep all of that straight, it's hard enough keeping a movie straight, let alone right. one this big that you're shooting on the water in Vietnam, <laughs> and, like, they talk for- about how... Fortunately, Oops. there's so much to look at in any given shot that it's easy to not, like, fr- there could be a ton of... Uh, non-continuity in there and i wouldn't have known like there's so much to look at they talk about like how tsunamis and typhoons would like (laughs) ruin shooting schedules like oh we can't shoot this now like and you just you're so casual about it (laughs) well except for all the heart attacks that everyone had and then on top of it just the post-production side so not only did they have so much footage but then, you know, from a score sense, this is one of the first major motion pictures to do to use a synthesizer score. Um, synthesizers weren't extremely common at this time. And um, on top of it, Walter Murch, who was editing the film, he was also in charge of their sound design. And they had like four months to do the sound design for this. And there's a great clip, and I'm, I want to play because I know exactly where to find it, of Francis Coppola talking about he wanted this film to be a big deal film like a big event film and he's like i want us to build a theater in the geometric center of the united states somewhere in kansas and it would just have one screen and it will just house apocalypse now and it'll play it for 10 years in the way we want it to because this is one of the first films to have surround sound they like one of the first films since fantasia to use surround sound okay like it's gonna be it's gonna be set to our standards and if the distributors don't like it fuck them (laughs) <laughs> it's just a great clip of him talking about this shit. And that's not how it worked. But, like, this is one of the first films to have surround sound. Um, where they're, they're uh, it's, Dolby, it's Dolby stereo surround sound. And they had realized when they were making the film that they were using audio from, um, like, audio libraries. You know, for gunshots and tiger yeah. wars and shit yeah. like that. They realized that almost all the audio was in mono. It wasn't in stereo. Oh. So they couldn't use a lot of it. So they had to go out and record new shit. They had to record. They had to go back to the jungle and record ambience. They had to record brand new gunshots. 
And I watched this movie in surround sound and just the amount of sound moving around you is so impressive. And these early surround sound films are like that because it's new technology. So they're experimenting and playing with it. Whereas now it's become common and it's like, oh, just whatever, you know, don't try that hard. (laughs) But it's like this film is so impressive sounding. It's I, I, I can't equate this enough. Like Koppel even mentions how when they were going, you know, in when Apocalypse Now hit home video it was a film that people use to test their audio equipment okay and i can see why because it's it's immersive and to think like not only they have problems making making the film but then they have problems after the fact trying to assemble the film and (laughs) i feel like lesser crews would have given up sure yeah, absolutely. And, and since it was taking so long, there was press. There was bad press coming. Like you know, it was a lot of like snarky newspaper being like, "Apocalypse now," more like "Apocalypse when." It was taking so long to make. Um, and to think, like the original plan for the film was, John Millies wrote the script, and George Lucas wanted to just go to Vietnam because the script was written when Vietnam was still going on. Oh, Jesus. He wanted to just go to Vietnam during the war and just go there, you know, kind of be like a photographic journalist, kind of like Dennis Hopper's character was, and just shoot a cinema verte film following that script about this movie. And and pretty much the fact that the studios were even considering this is insane. But they were like, no, you're all going to get killed. (laughs) It's like, wait, you you were considered enough to let them in the door? (laughs) What? I would, but our insurance just would skyrocket. But, you know, George Lucas went off and did Star Wars, and I think he did pretty okay. He did okay for himself. Speaking of people having, like, heart attacks on set. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, Martin Sheen almost died, and there's, like, an audio of Coppola, and I think he's, like, potentially drunk in this clip. I don't know, because he sounds very belligerent, but he's, and it, to be fair, his wife is recording him without him knowing, too, when these clips are made, and he's, like, it's like, if they find out Martin Sheen had a heart attack, they're gonna say I killed him. He can't die until I say he can die, or some shit like that. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I love, it's, it's always interesting to me when we go back to these later big films that have actors that went on to have you know very prominent careers later in life Mm -hmm. it's not to say that they weren't big then but i got to know these actors as older actors right yeah um so when 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 martin sheen showed up in that opening scene i'm like i jokingly i go oh it's emilio estevez (laughs) Me and Amanda were like, "Hey, he's in Grace and Frankie." <laughs> no, and it's 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 like, yeah, you're right. They have, a lot of these actors have like these personalities of like almost like kind grandfather, curmudgeonly grandfather right, yeah. characters, and like they are not those people in this film. Yeah, so and like, like Mar- uh, Al Pacino in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Like I had, I hadn't seen any of his really early work. I knew him as a as this grizzled older, you know usually cokehead kind of it doesn't seem like the same person no right it's bizarre and like uh, a couple just behind the scenes stuff that i love is one um marlon brando pretty much agreed to do the film but he's like my you're gonna pay me a million dollars a week (laughs) for me to do it and and it was cop was like cop was like okay that's steep but you know we've worked together you were in the godfather i'll do it 
but I, I want he's like one I want you to read Hearts of Darkness and just know your lines came to set hadn't read the book didn't know his lines <laughs> all dick. the stuff at the end of the film was pretty much improv oh jeez <laughs> and um the story goes that the the scene where like Marlon Brandt when Kirch throws something at Dennis Hopper's character it's because Dennis Hopper was constantly fucking with Brando behind the scenes, and he Brando, <laughs> Brando would not allow Marlon uh, would not allow Dennis Hopper to be in the s- same room as him. So anytime he'd come near, he'd throw shit at him. <laughs> That's but great. like, there's there's if you ever get a chance to see Heart of Darkness, the documentary about making it, it's fantastic because they show all this outtake footage of Marlon Brando doing the role, <laughs> and like he's so very much in character, and he's talking about he's you know he's he's like he's talking about the hollow men and all this other stuff and he's just very much in character and waxing poetic and then at one point he goes i swallowed a bug <laughs> or like this other scene where he's like he's being really intense and he walks away and he's walking towards the door and he goes i've got nothing more i can say in this scene <laughs> but like he's doing it in character it's so great oh and on top of that you know they keep p- talking about how kurtz is like this this young buck even though he's old guy he's you know competed he's competing against all these young marines and brando showed up fat and he wasn't expecting that so they had to be very careful about how they lit him and how they showed yeah. him because he's like this round buddha character <laughs> who's supposed to be like extremely fit war veteran yeah uh, yeah, I guess I the mean, more, the, oh fortunately, my God, that, that lighting worked really well for the oh, for the themes of the film of like you know of of Kurtz and Willard both being in the you know you, you could get so literal with it it's nauseating. They're both in the darkness and they're both lost mm-hmm. in this you know uh, so that <laughs> yeah thank thank God for uh, uh, karma or not karma um, serendipity. Yeah, like, it, it worked out super well. And, like, Coppola even talks about, like, when he was shooting the film, he didn't have an ending. Oh. Because, like, the, he, he kind of had an ending. Um, but since Brando couldn't, wouldn't remember any of his lines, and you know, so almost all their lines were, you know, about waxing poetic about war and shit was just improv between them. Um, he didn't know how he's going to have the movie end. And I, I don't remember the story, but how he came up with, like, him sneaking in and, doing and killing him with the machete and everything with it being intercut with the slaughtering of that cow which like i i don't know i I watched the film and i wasn't like i was just kind of like taken aback but like that that was like the very clear not cut around animal violence was jarring but it you know i i think it worked as as this very powerful metaphor for all the things that they're talking about, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, I I can't speak to the morality, or I could, but the morality of it aside, it certainly helped set the tone for that very uh, disturbing sequence. Mm-hmm. And um, like, it's, it's funny. Like, I almost. I, I'm not really the type of person to turn a movie off, but, like, I almost just got really turned off by the film in the very beginning when we were at Kilgore's camp, and it was just, like, the crazy cr- fucking explosion-heavy war film with the Ride of the Valkyries and all this other shit. And just because I was like, oh, this is all really stupid. 
but oh, go ahead. But I was, but as I was watching, I was like, I also have to remember when this movie came out. Nothing like this had been seen before. Had not, had not been shown before. And then, like, it was it was around the time that he's like d- intentionally destroying this village because they've got good waves. That I was like, oh, they're doing more with this scene than just being like, let's blow shit up. It's like this guy is so very clearly insane um to the point where you know he's destroying a village and killing people just so he can get some good surf in that he's like every time a bomb would go off around him he didn't flinch he's like you are way too comfortable with this even a character like willard who you know when he was home couldn't think of anything but the war even he wasn't that hardened um, I think this would be a good opportunity to talk about our uh, Thrill House moments. Yeah. Um, we could get a jingle for that. <laughs> what, what? Can't we just use the video game sound from The Simpsons? Thrill House, yeah. Let's, I'll just play that right now. This is great! And all I've done is enter my name! Thrill House! Mom, heart swearing! That scene was my Thrill House moment. Really? Because um, that was almost my anti-Thrill House. <laughs> almost um not not because i liked what the character was doing mm-hmm. but i that was when for me it turned into this war movie this mission and i realized how much more they were saying mm-hmm. um with with Tildor's character um yes the the fact that when these explosions were going off all around them, every single person in the scene flinched except for Kildor. Um, Give me my shorts. <laughs> the uh, wh- where did it? Um, oh, when he asked Lance, uh, "What do you think?" and and Lance goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's exciting." Uh, first off, says that response says so much about Lance that he had not yet been. In combat. Traumatized by the war, which you then get, like, he, his experience through the war is the most true to, like, watching PTSD set in for somebody. Going from innocent to totally off the, you know, <laughs> off the far end. Um, and then yeah. Kildor's response is, no, no, the waves, the way, like, uh, I really loved the dia- the writing of the dialogue in this film every yes. line was exciting to me because of how smart each line was written to say something about the character or or the themes of the film or so, like yes. every line i'm like oh that's saying so much more than just what they're saying um but yet, so that, at the same time it, it doesn't feel overwritten it's not like terribly no, stylized no and that's no because uh, funny enough i think my thrill house moment was the same like the first half of that stuff when they're, like, destroying the village and everything, and, like, the Ride of the Valkyries thing, I'm like, eh. But it's, like, when it really sank in that they came here to fucking surf waves, and he intentionally chose a more dangerous spot because the waves are better, and that whole sequence of, you know, you can either surf or you can fight, that was my moment. I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, and then you had the very Charlie, famous, don't surf. <laughs> yeah. Then you had the very famous Napalm in the morning speech, yeah. and... Um, like John Milius, who wrote this, um, he very much is like, he is that, who, I can't, why, I cannot remember the name of the author, who wrote the, the old man in the sea? Uh, oh, uh, Hemingway. 
Hemingway. He's he got a Hemingway quality to him because he's like the manly man poet, almost. Where um, right, he's not like Arlie Ermey's yeah uh, typecast characters, where it's just that screaming drill sergeant kind of character. Holy Jesus! Frank Bannister. Go ahead, I'll handle this. What in the hell are you doing in my graveyard? You have been told to stay away. Sound off like you've got a here. Yeah, well, it's a public place, Hiles. I do not like you. You cannot bring your spooks in here without my permission. Disappear, scumbag. Equally <laughs> as hardened by the war, but with that poetic underside that Arlie Ermey's characters tend not to have. Yeah, and like Milius when he like when he wrote like to me he honestly he seems kind of like the right wing poet type of thing cuz he even talks about like how he came up with the title Apocalypse Now is he's like, he's like uh he said hippies used to really bug him uh for whatever reason and then he's like they always used to have a, a peace sign that said Nirvana Now you know you can do drugs and hit Nirvana and that used to piss him off for some reason so he took the peace sign and changed it into like a B-52 bomber and wrote Apocalypse Now. And, you know, like that's, he was just being contrarian to be contrarian. And he talks about as a young man, like being afraid of being out in the woods. So he'd like intentionally sleep out there. And, you know, he just seems like that archetypal, like manly fucking character. (laughs) Um, And he even said like, he had no intent, he had no intention of becoming a filmmaker. He went to film school but he's like he had every intention to sign up for the army, and he didn't think he's going to live past twenty six because he assumed he was going to die at war. Hmm. That's just the, the type of guy this guy is, and he couldn't go to he had he had asthma or some shit, so he couldn't go to fight. Bone spurs, <laughs> yeah. So like he couldn't, and he wanted to. Um, but it's like the fact that he is that guy reads in this script. And they also give you an idea of like he, but he's also he's a surf brat, which also gives an idea of who he was in this script. He wrote a film called and wrote and directed a film called Big Wednesday. It was just about these surfers who realize they can't surf for their entire life and have to, you know, eventually put the board away and figure out who they are. And it's like it's kind of interesting that the same man who used to be like you know, be about being on the beach and surfing. It's the same guy who wrote Apocalypse Now. And the, he he talks about it in an interview with, with Coppola uh, that's on the disc that he actually he got sent to live in Montana for a while when he was a kid to get him off the beach. That's how much time he spent on the beach. I imagine he was <laughs> skipping school to go surfing, and that's when he like read Hearts of Darkness for the first time as a kid. And you know, like I said, was sleeping outside, and you know, would take a knife with him, and it was just kind of imbued himself with being this mountain man. And like when he was, he had a film, he had a screenwriting teacher who told him that Hearts of Darkness was, un, no one could adapt it. Orson Welles tried and he failed. And he was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to do it then. So it's like, <laughs> the more I find out about the screenwriter too, it's like, yeah, all that checks out for the movie that he wrote. Yeah. And I feel right. like the reason the film works, and this is just me spitballing here. Yeah. Milius. Who did go on to direct films, and you know he he directed like Conan the Barbarian and shit. Um, he he definitely views himself more as a writer, especially because no one wanted to write. And he was friends with that movie brat group: George Lucas, Francis Coppola, Martin Scorsese, all of those guys, uh, Steven Spielberg, all of them. Like he he wrote the Indianapolis speech for Jaws. Okay, and it's like oh, I can see how the same voice. Did yeah. that. 
Um, but um, he, it's it's int- reason I think this film works is because he has a very unique way to of viewing the world. And anyone who writes that, you know, I love the smell of napalm in the morning speech has a very specific way he sees war <laughs> and the world. The reason I think this film works is because they got someone who I, I'm not speaking that I know any of these people's politics, but going on just how I get how I feel. He got there's someone completely opposite in terms of morals and how he views the world directing the film. Sure. And I think that's the reason it works. Cause like, I feel like if he would have directed this movie, it probably still would have worked, but it would have been a very different film. Yeah. No, I, you know, uh, someone directing the film who doesn't agree with the war and, you know, maybe Millis didn't agree with the war, but he, he was go- He wanted to be a soldier. You know, I think says a lot about like the way the film turned out the way it did. Yeah. And it speaks to the, the, the nature of filmmaking being collaborative. It, uh, you know, goes back to our conversation about how this film was edited by multiple editors. It is, it's an interesting exploration of collaboration and, um, taking different viewpoints and distilling them into a single product. It's, it's, it's contrary, uh, in a way that works. Yeah. And I, and I'm still thinking about what you're talking about, just the way that he wrote dialogue where it's, it's 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 very poetic and has a lot of double meaning without it being showy or say like Tarantino esque where it's very overwritten. And yeah, yeah. It's it's very sparse, but effective. I I found myself typically I don't take notes the way that I did here where I was just writing down lines mm-hmm. because they were delivered in a way that I'm like, that's going to be important. I don't know why yet. But I want to write this down so that later on when something happens, I'll be able to go, ah, oh, that's what they were mm-hmm. saying back then. Any, any lines that really stuck out to you? Uh, I've, I've quoted a few of them. Um, I think the, <laughs> listeners, the best... If, listeners, if you listen quietly, you can hear my cat Lewin screaming because <laughs> he plays in the basement and we close the door and he wants out currently. Nice. I'm, I'm sure you also heard my stepson uh, yelling in the background earlier. Probably. <laughs> Um, so one that they say very early on that you could tell was a setup for the rest of the film and I think made for a good touchstone is there's no way to, and I may not have trans, I might, mm-hmm. may be paraphrasing, but there's no way to tell his story, meaning Kurtz's, without telling my own. And if his story is a confession, then so is mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, I, I'd have to go back and watch this film three times to really consolidate what that means to me, but it says right off the get-go that their stories, this is, this is a story about the two of them and that it is a confession on both of their parts. And I Mm -hmm. think if you, if you watched it with a big post-it note on the, in the middle of your TV screen that says confession on it, and you looked at everything that happens through that lens, uh, you'd come up with uh, a lot of really meaty conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I already mentioned this mission do- doesn't exist, nor will it ever exist. And I felt that um, was not just about the mission, but also spoke to uh, Willard's character and and the 
place he was in in the beginning and how he didn't really have a home back home anymore but he also didn't really have a purpose back here um when when he first first meets kurtz he asks where are you from uh, and they have this conversation about you know origin and mm-hmm. um i think that highlighted that idea um i mentioned i took the mission what the hell else was i going to do showed that he had no no personal investment in it and mm-hmm. again speaks to the judgment conversation and theme um Oh, when uh, I, I was leading up to this earlier, but we got sidetracked. Um, the um, Kildor sequence, something that was part of that being a thrill house moment for me is, yes, they were showing destruction and the napalming and the shooting. But then also Tildor would come over and give somebody water from his own butt. And there was another soldier that was like, no, I'll get him some water. He's like, no, I have no problem giving this person water from my own personal canteen and, um and I the, w- the oh, megaphone of we are here to help you as you're saying like explosion so we are here to help you oh and then um, like the church sequence was as all these explosions are going off and there's people yeah. like fucking in the middle of church and- uh uh thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is the end of that and like everything else kind of settles down for that Mm-hmm. chunk of the line that's really highlighted and you see all of this destruction happening thy will be done mm-hmm. on earth as it is in heaven i like that that was those moments where i'm like oh yeah nope now i'm now i'm really jamming on what the not not what the film is saying but how they're saying it got me really mm-hmm. excited and like it's and go, going back to that whole sequence too um with kilgore like giving water from his canteen amanda pointed out something that's really interesting he's gonna give him water and then he gets sidetracked and he's pouring water on the ground and the guy never gets it amanda's like did he ever actually give him any water yeah and and but then he's then he's also like throwing those cards down and yep yep to to mark them so that charlie knows who did this and it he, he's such a contradiction. And it, even the napalm yes. in the morning speech is interesting because it goes from this, I love it, because it means victory, because if we win, then someday this war will be over. So it's not just that he loves blowing shit up. It's not that he... What, he's, he's fucked up, certainly, he, but for a really interesting reason. You know, if, if I go in... If I get this mission done, then we can all go home. And yeah. that speaks to what Kurtz was saying, where if, you know, the the problem with this war is that it's dragging on because three-fourths of the people out there, out here, are out to party and rock and roll and drugs and, and see the world. If I had a fraction of those people who had ethics... Uh, or who are ethical people who had morals but were willing to ignore those to do whatever it would take, then then we could win the war and it would be done with. And I think Tildor is one of those people. Yeah, um, and like, I mean, cause... and and that's fucked up. And who's to say that that would actually win the war? But I think it's it's important exploration in the contradictions of of why we were there, what it would take to actually win the war that that they were set out to to and why are we even like all of those big questions about the vietnam war um 
and, oh, well, and this oh, was sorry, made in the time, but now we've had decades to reflect back on it, and who knows if we've come up with any answers. Um, but but this movie is is asking those type of questions with their character choices and their dialogue choices and and things. But I almost wonder if Kilgore is not the type of person that Kurtz is referring to. I almost oh. wonder if if Martin Sheen's character is more in that line because, like, for me, Kilgore felt like the type of guy who's who's going to come in, he's going to wreck shit up <laughs> just so he can have some semblance of what it's like back home. All he cares about is surfing and having steak and drinking with the boys. And it's it's almost like he treats war like he's a blue-collar back-home guy who, you know, spends his day picking up garbage and then all, and he he work he does all this so he can kick back and have a steak and a brew with the boys. <laughs> sure. He's not focused on winning, he's focused on just causing havoc so he can have some fun. And I feel like the logical progression of Kilgore's mentality is shown at that bridge sequence where they don't have anyone watching over them and they're just kind of insanity incarnate drinking doing drugs shooting people shooting off into the woods to shooting at phantoms and losing their minds yeah and i feel like you take kilgore you mix it with those playboy bunnies and you get that bridge <laughs> sure <laughs> so that's my thought yeah, um, no, um, it the there, there's plenty of of room for interpretation and exploration. Oh, there's no right answer. The, the duality of mm-hmm. all of these characters, and who's to say that what Kurtz thinks would win the war is what would at you know? It's mm-hmm. I don't think it would be right to say that his opinion is the one I th- I think if you took any of those characters and looked at the rest of the film from their lens, then you get a completely different output. So that was those characters through Kurtz's lens of the war. Um, looking at Kurtz and Kildor through Willard's idea of the war would be very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at those two through Kildor's, you know, it's, <laughs> I want to see the whole movie. <laughs> I want to see the whole movie through Dennis Hopper's view of the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was so coked out. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, <laughs> there's even I think there's an interview with Coppola on the making of documentary where you know Coppola says you know you know I, I smoked some grass when I was over there making the film. He's like I don't know what I don't know what Hopper was on. <laughs> <laughs> I love my uh, my favorite moment with Hopper is when they get to the the temple that killed uh, that not killed her that Kurtz is su- a- apparently he was in but then he decided that he was out for a minute so maybe we should go wait in the boat but anyway they see the heads everywhere and he's like oh the heads like don't worry about that he like sometimes he gets a little overboard and out of control and you know he's uh, some days are better than others but don't worry about the heads <laughs> <laughs> just ignore the heads man you'll be happy if you just ignore the heads oh <laughs> you know this job would be really great if it wasn't for all the severed heads man <laughs> so before we wrap up unless there's something else you want to talk about no i think I... that's 
I do want to. I do want to ask you since you weren't able to be part of the podcast, right? Watching the Five Bloods as almost a double feature with 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 Apocalypse Now, especially now knowing that Spike Lee took so much influence from Apocalypse Now, right? Um, Talk about that experience. Yeah, so I watched them in reverse order. I watched the the Five Bloods first, and then that's what I did. Now after. and I, I had a sense watching it, having never seen Apocalypse Now. I'm like, I bet some of this is an Apocalypse Now reference that I'm just not getting. Um, and I think you could, like, in hindsight now, how they both ended in the temple ruins. Like, felt like there were some parallels there. Also, Kurt saying the horror and the guy from The Five Blood saying this is madness. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, the... The Defy Bloods, I thought, was great. And I really enjoy. I'm still kicking myself that I I screwed up and and missed the interview. Um, But I I think what I could add to that conversation is once they established that this gold that they were going after kind of was this... um, uh, for them represented reparations. Um, I kind of held that with me throughout the rest of the film. And so whenever any of the characters ever brought up the gold, I was kind of hearing that, that like that character, what, what they represented with this idea of reparations, Um, Mm -hmm. how the character that was fighting strongest for, um, no, this money isn't just our money. It is our people's money. He blew up first. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but then the, the character that was most staunchly saying, no, this is my money, is the one that ended up like crazy lost in the woods and got shot down by the locals. You know, so... I I was viewing the whole movie through the lens of reparations and found it fucking fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you guys said, but um, that's if I'd like to watch it again or listen to, to Spike Lee's take on this, what, what all of that represented, because I'm sure there's more to it than what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, I'm sure of it. And, like, I was trying to... I did find some interesting... Um, uh, interview clips between spike lee and cast and crew and everything but uh um he still hasn't gone super in depth and i don't even know if he ever will you know it's not really always his way sure. um but like I, I would love to see like a uh, listen to like a dvd commentary with spike lee and just watch it with him and see what he has to say one of the things that has always stuck with me uh, that spike lee said i think it was on the the little trailer for his master class. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, um, he's talking about do the right thing and how it's much more interesting because both of the characters on either side of the, the conflict are right. That Spike Lee sees them both as right. And if one was right and one was wrong, it wouldn't be that interesting of a film. It wouldn't be that interesting of a conflict. Um, and that's one of the issues that I have when people say that, like, uh, 
the haters that say like oh it's he makes anti-white films or anything mm -hmm. like i'm sure there are people that tell black stories more from their like obviously they're going to tell it from their perspective but i think spike lee in particular is actually interested in not looking at just the black perspective but that intersection of the different perspectives he's interested in the conflict that exists between the two um uh, another thing that i that i noticed um in in defy bloods was uh that when they first get on the boat and they pull up into this like little floating marketplace yeah and he has the argument with um with the guy trying to sell his wares he's like back off back off get away from me um and then it it accelerates and he starts using i, I don't know that the g word <laughs> it's um I, the, I know what the word is. I just don't know if I should say it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I, I'd, I'd rather not because yeah. I probably shouldn't. But he, he's using a racial term against them. Yeah. And earlier on in the film, there's that scene where uh, one of the five bloods calls another one the N-word. And then they have that conversation about, man, you know what? I pref I prefer not. And he goes, you know what? And he calls everybody there the N-word. Mm -hmm. um and so then he that same character later on is using the g word mm -hmm. um and as, as he's having that meltdown um but then they bring it all but they calm him down he's he has a, a triggered ptsd you know episode and something that i found interesting that i think says something about where the heart of the film is is when they they bring their hands in right they all mm -hmm. they all put their hands in the five bloods or the four that are left all put their hands in and That's then he the looks picture at i his, used it's the picture i used yep. on for the logo yep and so if it if it had just been them then it's a story about this group of vietnam vets that are returning but then he says hey my boy my son you put your hand in there too so then it's more than that. It's it's about uh, family, uh, about um, black brotherhood, you know, because he brought somebody who was outside of that group of Vietnam vets, who was his son and another black man. Um, but then he goes one step further, and he invites their tour guide, who is a mm -hmm. local, to put his... He says, no, you get your hand in there too. Which then to me says that the film is about male camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And that it goes beyond black. It goes beyond this shared experience that we had as soldiers. Um, so I, I think that scene and the intentional inclusion of those other two individuals into that kind of sacred moment said a lot about the the intent of the film. I I completely agree. I got and I, I was I. I was sad that, like I said, you couldn't be on the episode, and I'm not like rubbing it in further. But like when <laughs> no. you texted me, when you were like, "Man, this film's going for everything," <laughs> it, they goddamn was the kitchen sink in there in terms of like uh, uh, PTSD, uh, war experience, reparations. Uh, uh, it just there, there was so much in that mm -hmm. film, and every moment, it's like there's so much more than I'm catching right now that's being said, and. Again, that that was true of Apocalypse Now. Also, um, I thought 
Defy Bloods was a great film that um, it's a shame that it kind of went the Netflix route because I I suspect, and I could be wrong, things are changing so rapidly that it will not get as much exposure as it had if it had a theatrical release that then landed on Netflix. And see, um, and that's the double-edged sword with it because it's one of those things where, like, Alfonso Corian, who directed uh, Roma for Netflix said um he's like i'm a little bummed out didn't get theatrical release he's like but i'm gonna be completely honest he's like a couple million people have watched my film on netflix and he's like i'm sure if it was in a theater right now there'd be three people in the audience okay so he's you know he's like it's open to more people but it's one of those things that movies on netflix don't usually get the promotional push and defy bloods was supposed to have a theatrical release it just didn't right um (laughs) But, you know, Netflix doesn't promote their own films, right? Unless it's, it's, unless it's, it's Stranger Things, they're not going to promote it. Netflix's concept is like, let's just throw and all these streaming services. Let's just have as much content as we can, and you dive in and find something. Like it's not our job to tell you what to watch. It's it's kind of like a video store, but like I would prefer a little curation, <laughs> right? Well, and not and just I, be. I love when it's like, oh, we saw that you just watched The Five Bloods. We recommend How to Train Your Dragon, Netflix original series. I'm like, <laughs> right. I, I remember, the, I don't see I remember the when Netflix offered, a, I think it was Netflix, offered like a large sum of money to anyone that could dramatically improve that algorithm. Like they were saying, come to us with an algorithm that will actually show people what they want to watch after they watch something else, and we will give you X amount of dollars. <laughs> And they have not figured it out yet. <laughs> no, they clearly have not <laughs> fixed that. Unrelated um, thought. You know one thing I've, I've noticed? I don't know if I'm Netflixing correctly, because I've never once gotten that notification being like, do you still want to watch blank? I've never gotten that. <laughs> Ever. Well, you you don't, you self-admittedly don't like to, to binge. That's fair. That's fair. Maybe I, I have gotten that alert many times. <laughs> I, I used to think it was a myth. It's like, that alert doesn't exist. Don't lie to me. <laughs> When I'm like four episodes deep into something, and then it's like, are you sure you don't want to get outside or take a shower or something? And I'm like, you know what, Netflix, fuck you. <laughs> don't yeah, you, don't, don't you judge, judge me, Netflix. <laughs> Who are you to judge? Um, you go take a shower, dick. <laughs> yeah. Stupid Netflix. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, overall, The Five Bloods I loved, um, and I loved your conversation. Uh, well, I'm glad. And, and I was uh, again. It's all my fault. You're you're more than welcome to rub it in. I just like 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 I was saying earlier on. Just my ability to hang on to like daily tasks is suffering right now. <laughs> I I can only imagine. Uh, and I feel like the last thing we should mention, and I'll probably put something at the top of the episode as well, because it does tie into the five bloods, is that Chadwick Boseman just passed yes. away. Yes, yeah, I and, was thinking about that this morning and making sure that we uh, mentioned that, and then got so wrapped up in it. And um, the timing of it, and I've, I've, I have actually chosen really not to do a whole lot of promotion for the Five Bloods episode because I don't want it to ever seem like I'm utilizing his passing as a way to get more likes or more right. listens. It just so happens that I released that episode like a week or two before he passed away. So it's it's very uh, unfortunate, serendipitous timing. Um, But the man was only like 43 years old. Yeah. And he was really young. And it caught everyone off guard. Gentlemen, um, get, get your colons checked. 
Yeah, and actually, it's funny. Like I, I clicked on it to to intentionally with the idea of reading it louder, uh, or reading it le- later. Um, uh, Clark Peters, who played, um, oh, he played one of the Five Bloods. I, I don't remember his character's name. I think it was Melvin, the guy who had okay. the, the the daughter in vietnam yep he actually says that he he misjudged chadwick boseman when I'm, I'm looking at the article now just okay um he said i have to say with a little bit of regret that i probably wasn't the most altruistic in that environment but hindsight teaches us a lot of things peter says uh he said that um he pretty much said that uh what i'm addressing is basically my wife asked me what chadwick boseman was like and i was really excited to work with him and i said i think he's a little precious and she said, why? Because like, he's surrounded by people who are fawning over him. Um, he said he's got a, a Chinese practitioner who's massaging his back when he's offset. He's got a makeup lady who's massaging his feet. And his girlfriend is there holding his hand. I'm thinking, well, maybe the Black Panther thing went to his head, not realizing the entire time he's battling cancer. Sick. So, yeah. you know, he said that he <clears throat> feels bad for having misjudged him. And, you know, they are in 104-degree weather. And... Um, and what essentially that you know he's there suffering, but he wanted to do the film, right? So, and you know it's it's a great lesson that hopefully we can glean something from before we're in the unfortunate scenario to put our foot in our mouths and misjudge someone. But you you just never know what somebody's going through. No, he leaves. What's up? I never yielded! And as you can see, I am not dead! He will be missed. I hope you all still check out our our episode on The Five Bloods, because it's one I'm really proud of. I and, just uh, didn't want Wakanda it to be... Wakanda Forever. <laughs> yeah, Wakanda Forever. I just didn't want it to seem in poor taste to put them together like that. Right. But he was, he was, he was great in that film. But honestly, I've not seen him in many films where he wasn't great. So right. I think um, history will be very kind to his, to his uh, addition. Contribution. To the world, contributions to the world of film. Yep. Well, shit. We've done it again, shame We've, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else to add, Nick, before we wrap up for the week? Yeah, I think um, that if you don't like what we talked about then really i have two words for you what's those two words nick <laughs> watch movies watch movies ah, <laughs> it, it, it just brings damn me, skype delay it brings me so much joy though because i can make it work in post <laughs> <laughs> we'll fix it in post yeah the shameless picture show is recorded in milwaukee wisconsin and eastern maryland is hosted and produced by nick richards and michael Byers and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below.